So I have a combination of a pulpit to hide behind and a PowerPoint for you to be looking at so you're not looking at me. Um, let's open up with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray you'd help me to, I know this is, I help you, help me to stand for a half hour. My feet are really hurting. And um, I just pray that you would be honored through the words that um, that I'd speak. You work through my weakness. In Jesus' name, amen. I, I'm sorry about the, I, I breathe wrong. Um, is there something I should do with this? I'm sorry. Can you still hear me? Bring it back up. Up. English evangelical author Leonard Ravenhill has the following on his tombstone. Are the things that you're living for worth Christ dying for? When I thought about answering that question, I thought about the new song that was sung by the four living creatures and the 24 elders to Jesus in Revelation 5. You are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we will reign on the earth. This song talks about Jesus dying. This song talks about Jesus being worthy and I think this song talks about how we are to live a manner worthy of Christ's death and God's purchase of our lives, namely as kings, priests, and I will add prophets. In the 1689 London Baptist Confession, in a chapter entitled Christ the Mediator, it is stated, for in respect to our ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. In respect to our alienation from God and imperfection, the best of our services, we stand in need of his priestly office to reconcile and present us acceptable to God. And in, need of our, and in respect to our adverseness and utter inability to turn to God, and for our rescue and security from our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, and preserve us to his heavenly kingdom. In short, the prophetical, priestly, and kingly offices are for the removal of man's ignorance, alienation, and bondage. Paul mentions these three aspects of our condition in Ephesians 4. This I say, therefore, to you in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being estranged from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness to work all uncleanness with greediness. The apostle mentions our ignorance. Futility of the mind, darkened understanding, blindness of heart, our alienation, estranged from the life of God, and our bondage give themselves over. Since Jesus has sent us into the world as the Father sent him into the world, John 20, 21, our ministry is to some extent going to be prophetic, priestly, and kingly. This morning I'd like to look at something about the Bible says about prophets, priests, and kings about Adam's failure in each of these areas and how we are to live worthy of Christ 
by fulfilling these offices. Prophets. The Hebrew word for prophet is nobi. It has an ancient, it comes from an ancient pictograph root, which means the seed within. A prophet is one who would bring forth inner fruit, namely the word of Yahweh that was given to him for others. For instance, we read in Exodus 7 about Aaron being Moses' prophet. Aaron would speak the words to Pharaoh, which he received from Yahweh through Moses. A true prophet only had something to say if Yahweh spoke to him. But the revelation of mere human prophets was incomplete. and Therefore, Yahweh told the Israelites about a prophet of prophets in Deuteronomy 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren. I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak them that I, all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. Priests. The Hebrew word for priest is kohen. It comes from an ancient pictograph root, which means the opening of a seed. When a seed opens, the roots form the support. It goes down into the ground and forms the support for the plant before it starts to grow up out of the soil. Priests with a base that supported the people. Just as roots are, cannot be seen, the prophets, the priests, did their work where the people cannot see them, inside the tabernacle or the temple. As indicated in Ephesians 4, our condition of mankind as a result of the fall included being estranged, apolotraio, from the life of God. That same Greek word is used by Paul in Colossians 1. And you, who were alienated, apolotraio, and, the, uh, and enemies of your mind and the wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach. We were alienated from God. We were separated from the source of life. How do priests affect reconnection? According to, the, we read in Hebrews chapter 5, every high priest taken from among men is appointed for, things, for men and things pertaining to God that he may offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Priests offered gifts, doron, and sacrifices to si'ah. These same Greek words are used together in several Old Testament passages in the, in the Greek translation, which is called the Septuagint. For example, we read in Leviticus 3, when his offering, doron, or in Hebrew, korban, is a sacrifice to si'ah of a peace offering, he offers it of the herd, he shall offer it without blemish. That Hebrew word korban comes from a, a verb meaning korab, which we find in, in, in Psalm 65. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach, korab, you that, you, that he may dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with goodness of your house and of your holy temple. That this word group has the idea of bringing people close. Priests did the work of bringing those who are far off from Yahweh close to him so that they could be satisfied with his goodness. Kings. The Hebrew word for king. The Hebrew word for king is Melech. I apologize. Um, I 
I apologize. I'm being, I'm thrown off. Huh? Is that, I don't know what I should do. Hebrew word for king is melech. It comes from a pictograph root that means staff in a palm. A nomad traveled with a foot, traveled by foot with a staff in his hand to provide support while he was walking, or as a weapon to defend against predators and thieves. A king was one who walked among his people like a shepherd leading his flock, not like one who sat on his throne separated from the people. At best, human rulers were led by a mixture of righteousness and wickedness. The kingdoms of this world are under this, the sway of the wicked one, 1 John 5:19. When Satan tempted Jesus, he offered him all the kingdoms of the world if he would bow down to him. Our Lord did not question Satan's right to give him those kingdoms, but he, did question, he didn't have the right to worship. By God's design, Satan had a stranglehold. Our freedom could not be won by a human king. For the best human king is himself in bondage to Satan, death, and sin. When Adam and Eve were first created, they enjoyed three things. The true knowledge of God, the sweet presence of God, and the benevolent rule of God. Adam's failure brought about a condition in, in, in Ephesians 4 and the need for Jesus' offices of prophet, priest, and king. The true knowledge of God. The only way that we can know anything about God is if God reveals it to us. In Genesis 2, Moses records Yahweh God's first commands to, to Adam. This is before Eve was created. Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely, but of the tree of the knowledge of the, good, of the, tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. A prophet needs words from God in order to speak. This command gave Adam quite a bit of true knowledge about Yahweh, which he could share with Eve and their descendants. God, Yahweh is good. Yahweh provides for the needs of his creation. David writes in Psalm 145, Yahweh is good to all. The eyes of all look expectantly to you, and you give them their, your, their food in, in due season. You open up your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. He's not just good, he's generous. Yahweh generously provides for the needs of his creation. Notice he told man that he could freely eat. The Hebrew says, eat, eat. In 1 Timothy 6.17, the apostle Paul describes Yahweh as the living God who gives us all things to enjoy richly. He's not stingy. Adam could eat fruit to his heart's content, just not from one tree. Yahweh is gentle. Yahweh is, has a right to command man. However, he commands as a gentle father, not as a despotic dictator. The words that precede the, the second command, which is actually in Genesis 1, when, where we find Adam and Eve, are God bless them. Yahweh blesses with his commands. Remember, Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and you will learn from me, for I am lowly and gentle of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As the Apostle John tells us, God's commands are not burdensome, 1 John 5, 3. They bring rest. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is gracious in, in letting them know what the penalty for disobedience was, but even the penalty itself is gracious. The Hebrew says, dying you shall die. The day they disobeyed, a death did occur. They were separated from Yahweh. Being cut off from the source of life, they began to die physically, but they were allowed to live many years, 930 in the case of Adam. So we've seen that God, just in that one command, God is good, God is generous, God is gentle, God is gracious, whose commands are not burdensome, but rather are a blessing. And in Genesis 3, Satan comes along to do his work of maligning Yahweh. Moses writes, the serpent said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, you should your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let's look at Satan's lies here. The first is subtle. The adversary appears to be quoting scripture. Yahweh did use the phrase, of every tree of the garden, and you shall not eat, but not in the order or the sense which Satan makes it sound. Satan focuses on the prohibition, while Yahweh's command emphasizes his generous provision. The adversary inverts the, the emphasis to not eating, while God's command put the emphasis on freely eating everything, including the tree of life, not just, the tree, just, just, just not from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The second lie is not so subtle. Satan outright contradicts Yahweh and calls him a liar when he says, you shall not surely die. He uses the same phrase in Hebrew, dying you shall not die which points to the death that would occur spiritually from their broken relationship to Yahweh and to their dying process that would ultimately result in their physical death. Satan's saying, nope, neither of those things are going to happen. The third lie is an outright fabrication with no basis in scripture. Satan wants Eve to think that Yahweh is keeping her from being a god herself. For a long time, I've thought Genesis 3.6 she also gave to her husband with her, meant that Adam was standing right there with her during the conversation with, this, with the serpent. However, for several reasons, I think I've been wrong. One, in Adam's punishment, Yahweh says, because you heeded the voice of your wife. If Adam had been standing there with Eve during the serpent's temptation, he would have heeded the voice of the serpent, not the, the voice of his wife. And second, the second time we find this word with, the Hebrew word with, is used in Adam's excuse. The woman whom you gave to be with me, Genesis 3.12. Eve was Adam's companion, but that didn't mean she was going to be standing next to him all the time. You can be described as with someone, even though they're not alongside you all the time. It does not appear that Adam was there to counter Satan's lies with truth. However, he had failed as a prophet in preparing Eve against potential deception. Truth was supposed to flow from God to Adam to Eve. Instead, lies flowed from Satan to Eve to Adam. The sweet presence of God. Moses writes regarding Adam's responsibility in Genesis 2. 
And Yahweh God took the man and settled him in the garden and to serve and to guard it. The Hebrew word translated settled is nuach. And it's, we find it also in Deuteronomy 12, where we read, when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which Yahweh your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest, nuach, from all your enemies round about, so you shall dwell in safety. There there will be a place where Yahweh your God chooses to make his name abide. There you shall bring your offerings that you vow to Yahweh. Rest from enemies, dwelling in safety. I think that's a good description of pre-Genesis 3, Garden of Eden. The mention of a place of worship I also think is appropriate. The Hebrew words translated serve and guard or abad and shamar. We find related words of these in the message Yahweh had to Aaron about the Levites. The trite, and we read in Numbers 18, the tribe of Levi shall be joined with you and keep guard, Shamar Mishmereth, those two words are from the same root of the tabernacle of meeting for all the service, the Obadah, of the tabernacle, but the outsider shall not come near you. And you shall keep guard, Shamar Mishmereth, of the sanctuary and guard Mishmereth, the altar. There's, therefore, there shall be no more wrath on the children of Israel. The language of Adam's service is similar to the service of the Levites. According to Numbers 1, the Levites restrained God's wrath by guarding the tabernacle, the house of God, by forming a wall around it, thus keeping out those who did not belong. Adam failed to keep God's enemy out of the garden. After Adam sinned, we read in, in Genesis 3, and they heard the sound of the voice of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. Then Yahweh God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? They knew the sound of Yahweh that, that he made when he's in the garden. His question, Adam, where are you, seems to indicate that on other days, Adam was there to talk. Before sin, they enjoyed the presence of Yahweh. I think Charles Austin Miles uses a good word in his hymn, In the Garden, to describe God's voice while walking and talking with them, namely, sweet. David uses this word to describe a friend who betrayed him in Psalm 55. For it's not an enemy who reproached me, then I could bear it. Nor was it one who hated me, who exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him, who took sweet counsel together and walked in the house of God in the throng. In the Septuagint, again, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, that final verse is, in companionship with me, sweetened our food, we walked to the, in the house of God in Concord. This, per, this person's presence sweetened their meals together. We get our Greek word, we get our English word for the simple sugar, glucose, from the Greek word used here, glucanai. Similar words are used by James in describing two kinds of water. Does a spring bring forth fresh, glucose, water, and bitter, picross, from the same opening? Remember those words? No spring yields both salt and fresh. Bitter water is salt water. It's not life-giving for humans. The word James uses for spring is, is pege. It's found in the Septuagint translation of Psalm 36, where we read, the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. 
They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness in your house. You give them to drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain, the pegae of life. In your light, we see light. The Garden of Eden was God's house, a place of joy and gladness, according to Isaiah 51.3. Adam not only failed to keep Satan out of the garden, he also failed to make sure that he and Eve were drinking from the sweet fountain of God's life instead of they drank from the bitter dregs of death, the benevolent rule of God. When Yahweh created God, man and woman in his image, we read in Genesis 1, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, the sky and over the living creatures that move on the ground. The Hebrew word translated blessing is barak, and it comes from a root meaning to fill the palm. God was pouring gifts into their hands. He didn't make them slaves. He made them under rulers. David puts it this way in, in Psalm 8, he crowned them with glory and honor. He gave them dominion over the, over the works of his hands. He put all things under their feet. Adam and Eve were under a benevolent monarch, one who allowed them to rule over the works of his hands. As under rulers, they were to fill the, the rest of the earth with the conditions in the Garden of Eden. In Romans 13, governments are supposed to be concerned with good and evil. Rulers are not, Paul says in, in Romans 13, rulers are not a terror to the good, but to the evil. Do you want to be unafraid of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on those who practice evil. Adam was not content with the good given to him by God. He wanted the knowledge of evil offered him by Satan. Instead of expanding the influence of the Garden of Eden around on the rest of the earth, Adam abandoned his dominion to God's enemy and found himself outside the garden. Adam failed as a king. I think Adam's failure could be summarized in Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, fail as a king. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, fail as a prophet. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter, fail as a priest. Now Jesus is the word of God. He is the prophet of prophets. Jesus is the one sacrifice for all time for all people. He's the priest of priests. Jesus is the one to whom all knees, will, all knees will bow and confess his name. He's the king of kings. We're none of those things. But how can we live lives worthy of Christ's death as prophet, priests, and kings? I like to think about it in terms of overcoming darkness with light, overcoming bitterness with sweetness, and overcoming evil with good. Prophets, overcoming darkness with light. With regards to prophets, I'm thinking about darkness as ignorance of God. Overcoming darkness results from people gaining the true knowledge of God. Think of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those whose minds the God of this age, Satan, has blinded who do not believe, lest the light of the glory, the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. The light that is needed is the knowledge of the glory of God. What is God's glory? The Hebrew word is kabod. It's made up in, in Hebrew, it's made up of pictograph 
It's a palm of a hand representing covering and a picture of a tent looking down at a tent. So they have a covering of the tent. The black goat hair fabric that was used to make tent cover roofs, they would leave little, you see, little bit of holes and they would look like the stars in the night sky. In fact, the Hebrew word for star, kokab, comes from the same root. Stars are numerous. In, he, in Genesis 15:5, Yahweh told Moses he couldn't count the stars, and for good reason. There's an estimated 10 septillion, 10 to the 25th power stars in the universe. And even if you could count a billion stars a second, you would have to live to 320 million to count all the stars. They're massive. The sun's diameter is 100 times that of the Earth's, and 99.86% of the mass of our solar system is the sun. And they're brilliant. Stars are visible as a result of the nuclear reactions occurring at their cores. The light that we receive um, from the, the light in your house is, is measured in lux. If you measure it, it's 500 lux. However, even at 93 million miles away, the, 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 the intensity of the light that we receive from the, the sun is 25,000 lux, 50 times greater than that of the lighting in our houses. Putting those ideas together, numerous, massive, brilliant, we'd get the following definition. God's glory is the sum, substance, and stunningness of his perfections. When we talk about glorifying God, we're not talking about adding anything to God. We can't add anything. We're talking about an ever-increasing appreciation for and satisfaction with his, with his perfections. A synonym for glorifying would be magnifying. I love this quote by John Piper. Magnify has two distinct meanings. In relationship to God, one is worship, one is wickedness. You can magnify like a telescope or like a microscope. When you magnify like a, a microscope, you make something very tiny look bigger than it really is. A dust mite can be made to look like a monster. Pretending to magnify God like this is wickedness. But when you magnify like a telescope, you make something unimaginably great look like what it really is. With the Hubble Space Telescope, pinprick galaxies of the sky are revealed to be billion star giants that they are. Magnifying God like that is worship. We waste our lives when we don't pray and think and dream and plan and work toward magnifying God in all spheres of our life. God created us for this, to get, live our lives in such a way to make him look more like the greatness and beauty and infinite worth that he really is. In the night sky of the world, God appears to most people, if at all, like a pinprick of light in a heaven of darkness. But he created us and called us to make him look like what he really is. I'd say that's a great description of being a prophet. That through our words and through our actions, as Jesus says in Matthew 5:16, helping our world see the infinite worth of God. Peter states in his first epistle, you are our royal priesthood to proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The apostle there mentions kings and priests, the royal priesthood. But the passage also clearly talks about prophets who proclaim the praises of God. The Greek word there, praises, erete, is used in, in Isaiah 42 in the Septuagint. I am Yahweh, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. God doesn't share glory. 
to overcome the darkness of the ignorance of God's perfections as God's prophets, our speech must be telescopic, helping our world see the infinite worth of God and receive the love of the truth. Priests, overcoming bitterness with sweetness. With regards to priests, I'm thinking about the bitterness as death resulting from alienation to God. Overcoming bitterness results from helping people enter into sweet fellowship with God. We saw previously that bitter and sweet water were salt and fresh water, the former representing death, the latter representing life. In Exodus 15, we read, Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Now then they came to Marah, and they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter, picria, the same word that James used in James 3. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. And the people complained against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So he cried out to Yahweh, and Yahweh showed him a tree. And when he cast it into the waters, it made it sweet, glucanai. Paul indicates that first, in 1 Corinthians 10 that everything that happened during the Exodus pointed to Christ. So what does this tree that turned bitter water to sweet water represent? Well, in the Septuagint, the word for, for tree is zulon, which Peter also uses in 1 Peter 2.24. Jesus bore our sins on the tree, the zulon, that we, having died to sins, might live to righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed. I believe this tree represents the cross of Christ, not in so much as dying for our sins, but what the, 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 what the cross does in our life with respect, with, with, response, with respect to difficulties. Peter writes regarding our priesthood, we are living stones and are being built into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Well, what are these spiritual sacrifices? The author of Hebrews says, by Christ, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. There in Exodus 15, the kingdom of priests that they, were, they are called in Exodus 19.6, they were complaining to God, not praising him. Priests are to draw people to God. However, are you going to, who's going to want to come closer to a God who's being served by a murmuring priest? Think about in Acts 16. Paul and Silas were cruelly beaten, and they were thrown in stocks in the innermost prison. And instead of complaining, they prayed and sang hymns to God, which led to a sequence of events that found the prison guard wanting to know the God that they worshipped. It's not likely that guard would have been drawn to the Lord by listening to Paul and Silas whining about their circumstances. That was the impact the cross had on their lives. When we're murmuring about anything, we're opening the door for the enemy and drinking the bitter dregs of death. To overcome the bitterness of alienation from God as God's priests, our attitude must be sacrificial praise, helping our world see that true pleasure can only be found drinking from the sweet fountain of living water. That is God himself. Kings, overcoming evil with good. With regards to kings, I'm thinking about evil as bondage to Satan. Overcoming evil results in helping people come under the benevolent rule of God. Paul clearly speaks of overcoming evil in Romans 12. Repay no one evil for evil. 
Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says Yahweh. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I want to reshare something I shared three, three years ago during my last sermon from a book by Barbara Bowen called Strange Scriptures that Perplex the, Human, the Western Mind. In Bible lands, almost everything's carried on the head, wood jars, um, water jars, uh, baskets of fruit, vegetables, fish, any other article. Those carrying the articles don't, even don't touch it with their hands and they can make their ways through crowded streets and lanes with perfect ease. In many homes, the only fire that was kept was kept in a brazier, which was used for simple cook, uh, cooking as well as for warmth. The plan was to keep the fire always burning. But if it was to go out, some member of the family would take the brazier to a neighbor's house to borrow fire. Then she would lift the brazier on her head and start for home. If her neighbor was a generous woman, she would heap the brazier full of coals. To feed our neighbor and to give him drink was like heaping an empty brazier with live coals, which meant food, warmth, and life itself to the person needing it, and was a symbol of finest generosity. Solomon and Paul were not telling us to punish our enemies by pouring coals on their heads and burning them, but to win them over with kindness. After Paul quotes Roman Proverbs in Romans 12, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Revenge would be trying to overcome evil with evil. It doesn't work. Evil can only become, be, overrun, be overcome by good. In the battle between good and evil, I think it's important for us to remember these words from Paul in 2 Timothy 2. The servant of the Lord must not quarrel, and not, he must be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant repentance, that they may know the truth, that they may come to their senses, that they may escape from the snare of the devil, having had been held captive by his will to do his will. When it comes to those who oppose God, what do we see? Do we see a heart in need of repentance, or do we see someone who's confirmed in their hatred for God? Do we see someone who's in need of the truth, or one confirmed in their love of falsehood? Do we see a person who needs to come to their senses, or one who's confirmed in insanity? Do we see someone in need of freedom from Satan's snare, or one who's confirmed in evil? Do we see a hopeless cause to be written off, or do we see a, a, one whom our sovereign God can grant repentance, reveal truth, restore reason, and deliver from Satan? If it's the former, we'll see that other person as someone to quarrel with, an enemy. However, if it's the latter, we will see that other person as someone whom God can touch through our gentleness, our teaching, our patience, and our humble correction. To overcome bondage to Satan as God's kings our actions must demonstrate compassion compelled by the love of Jesus, helping our world come under the benevolent rule of God. In summary, we've indicated to overcome the darkness of ignorance of God's perfections as God's prophets, our speech must be telescopic, helping our world see the infinite worth of God and receive the love of the truth. To overcome alienation, bitterness of alienation from God as God's priests, our attitude must be sacrificial praise, 
Helping our world see the true pleasure can only be found drinking from the sweet fountain of living water. To overcome bondage to Satan as God's kings, our actions must demonstrate compassion compelled by the love of Jesus, helping our world come under the benevolent rule of God. I think of Stephen, accused of blasphemy and stoned to death. His speech was literally telescopic when he said, look, I see in the heavens, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He pointed his audience to the, to the, God, to the God of glory. I think his attitude could also be characterized as sacrificial praise. Instead of complaining as he was being stoned, we, see, we hear him saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And finally, his actions demonstrate, most definitely demonstrated compassion when his dying prayer was, Lord, do not charge, this, charge them with this sin. No doubt the prophetic words, the priestly attitude, and the kingly actions of Stephen were used by God to help Saul of Tarsus come to the true knowledge of, of God, the sweet fellowship of God, and the benevolent rule of God. If, say, if Stephen had had a tombstone, it could have had the words, yes, he lived for things that were worth Christ dying for. Can the same thing be said about us? Heavenly Father, I fail in all three of these areas. So much of my life is microscopic, trying to magnify me instead of you. Lord, so much of my life, so much the last two years with physical problems, a lot of my, I spent a lot of time complaining. Lord, instead of being like Paul and Silas, Lord, praising you in the midst of the most uh, difficult situation. And Lord, with politics as they are these days, I, I tend to look at people who I disagree with as enemies, as evil, as, as lost cases, when in fact, Lord God, they're people that are, that, are, that are in bondage to Satan and in need of you. Heavenly Father, help us to be the, the prophets, priests, and kings that bring glory and honor to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, his name, amen.